This is Brother Michael A. Smith, a voice for Freemasonry, bringing to you the Short Talk Bulletin, published by the Masonic Service Association of North America every month since 1923. This, the Short Talk Bulletin podcast, is produced in cooperation with the MSA and is made possible with the generous support of a grant from the Grand Lodge AFNAM of Minnesota. This is Brother David Kahns of United Lodge No. 8, Brunswick, Maine, presenting to you Volume 80, Number 6, June 2002, Hugh de Payon, written by Most Worshipful Stuart W. Minor, past Grand Master of Masons in Washington, D.C. Ah, this is like one of my favorite parts in history. Okay. During the era of the ancient Templars, at least 23 men served the Order of Grand Master. Of those who did, the first, Hugh de Payon, may have been the greatest of all. He was a man of unusual vision, well-connected and dedicated to a mission that would in time redirect the course of history, not only in the Holy Land, but throughout the world. It is believed that Payon was born about the year 1070 in the village of Payon, a small settlement located on the lower Seine River, some eight miles from Troy. That village was then situated with the province of Champagne, now a part of the department of Albe. By birth, de Payen became a member of the lower nobility, a part of the landed aristocracy with a specific obligation to accompany his feudal superior, Count Hugh of Champagne, on military campaigns. His relationship to the Count of Champagne despite his relatively inferior position as a member of the lower nobility, was close, and it is presumed that he also enjoyed a friendly relationship with a number of influential members of the provincial aristocracy. His wife was Catherine St. Clair of the St. Clairs of Scotland, by whom he fathered a son, Theobald, who later became abbot of St. Colombe de Seine. At the age of 25, Dupayan participated actively in the fighting that took place during the First Crusade. And after the fall of Jerusalem, he and Count Hugh of Champagne spent time together in the Holy Land. In the interval between the fall of Jerusalem and the subsequent creation of the Templar Order in 1118, de Payen traveled extensively between the Holy Land and Western Europe, presumably for the purpose of garnering support for a new knightly organization. What was his motivation? Was he driven by altruistic or opportunistic motives? Was he acting for himself or someone else? If for someone else, who? Obviously, these are questions for which there are no firm answers. But if his ultimate creation, the poor fellow soldiers of Christ, reflects in any way his character, opinions, and values, one can conclude that Pine was consumed by an unusual appreciation of the right and wrong and by a firm conviction that he must do what he could to eradicate the rampant secularism that prevailed in the world in which he lived. That he was successful in these efforts is apparent. Under his guidance, the poor fellow soldiers of Christ became a monastic military order that was far different than any other knightly order then in existence. Because of his efforts, the order became one in which its members, while obligated to the service of worldly purposes, at the same time lived disciplined lives characterized by the virtues of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Following the establishment and consecration of the poor fellow soldiers of Christ, Dupayan was named its first leader. How Dupayan was selected to the Grand Mastership is unknown. It may have been election by his peers, or it may have been by dictate by the King of Jerusalem, 
and it is possible that the selection was influenced by well-placed men in the province of Champagne. But by whatever means and for whatever reason, Dupayan was an obvious choice. Among the nine knights that compromised the new order, none was his equal in expertise or experience, and certainly none had his vision. In the appreciation of mission and opportunity, he stood head and shoulders above the rest. While details of Dupayan's selection of Grand Master are not known and probably will never be established, it is certain that his successors, each of whom was elected for life, were all chosen in an election procedure that may have been developed by Dupayan during the years of his administration of the order, 1118 to 1136. That procedure involved the employment of prayer and meditation to organize a panel of 12 electing priors. The electing priors, in turn, selected a chaplain, following which the 13, thus chosen, met in seclusion to elect a new Grand Master by majority vote. Immediately after the establishment of the poor fellow soldiers of Christ, hereafter termed the ancient Templars, Dupayan sought living quarters for his group. The king of Jerusalem, Baldwin II, responded to Dupayan's appeal by allocating to him space which, according to Allison, was within the sacred enclosure of the temple on Mount Moriah, amid holy and magnificent structures, partly erected by the Christian emperor Justinian, A.D. 540, and partly built by the Caliph Omar about A.D. 640, which was then exhibited as the Temple of Solomon. The activities of Dupayan and his men during the next decade are a matter of speculation. The group apparently remained small during the first decade of its existence, and there is really little information to substantiate the scope of its activities. But it is clear that in this period, Dupayan and Baldwin II developed a close relationship which was founded on their mutual concern about the long-range security of the Holy Land, politically and militarily. It was clear to both men that support of the Kingdom of Jerusalem and the Knights of the Temple by the powers of Western Europe was essential. With those needs in mind, Baldwin sent Dupayan, accompanied by William of Burris, on a diplomatic mission to Western Europe in 1127. He did so in the first instance because of his concern about the throne in Jerusalem. As the father of three daughters and no sons, he believed it essential for the stability of the kingdom that he arrange the marriage of his oldest daughter, Melisende, to a man of good standing and political potential. Hence, Dupayan was dispatched to convince Folk of Anjou to marry Baldwin's eldest daughter and thereby become heir to the throne of Jerusalem. In this mission, Dupayan was successful, and Folk became the third king of Jerusalem in 1131. Also on the agenda for the 1127 visit was the enlistment of recruits for his order and the solicitation of support on the part of the political rulers in Europe. While the Templars had enjoyed the good wishes and benevolence of Baldwin for almost a decade, there is little evidence that they had grown substantially in numbers. Beyond that, Baldwin had visions of solidifying his position in the Holy Land by deriving more deeply into territories not yet under his control. Hence, the gathering of funds and the recruitment of men was essential. In these areas, Dupayan was also successful, and soon after his return to Jerusalem, Baldwin launched an attack on Damascus. The preferment that Dupayan enjoyed went far beyond officials in Jerusalem, however, to include notables in the church, and in particular, one Bernard of Clairvaux, considered by many 
to have as much influence in the church as the Pope. Bernard, a cousin of Dupayan, had by this time been advised of the formation of the Templars by his uncle, André de Montbard. These interrelationships induced Dupayan to ask King Baldwin to write and ask Bernard to intercede with Pope Honorius and secure an audience for him with the latter. His purpose was to obtain papal sanction for his order and the approval of a rule whereby the order could operate. Hugh de Pian was thereafter dispatched to Rome along with Geoffrey de Saint Aldemar and four other Templars. There they were received with great honor and distinction, and the Pope called for a special council to be convened the following year in Troy, the capital of Champagne, to consider their petition. In the deliberations that evolved, de Pian and his colleagues were made welcome, and their requests were acted upon favorably. The rule that they proposed was scrutinized and revised, with the result being a document of 73 clauses that laid out a rigid and demanding standard of life and conduct for members of the order. The actions of the Council of Troy was subsequently endorsed by Pope Honorius. With the realization of Dupayan's goal for church sanction, the fortunes of the Templars advanced rapidly. Thereafter, according to Baijan and Lee, the order expanded at an extraordinary pace, receiving not just a massive influx of recruits, but also immense donations of both money and property. This source goes on to state that, within the year, the Templars came into possession of lands in France, England, Scotland, Spain, and Portugal. Further, they note, within a decade, their possessions would extend to Italy, Austria, Germany, Hungary, and Constantinople. In addition, in 1131, the ruler of Aragon bequeathed the order a third of his domains. The Templars had indeed struck it rich. Bajan and Lee also observed that in the years immediately following the Council of Troy, Hugh de Pion and other founding members of the order traveled extensively in Europe, promoting everything from themselves to the virtues of the timeshare fiefdoms in Palestine. In consequence, the order expanded rapidly thereafter, both in human and monetary resources. Not having to further worry, at least for the present, about support of his program, the Pion was at last able, as Grand Master, to focus attention on the organization, administration, and operational functions of his order. The Pion was successful in solidifying the position of the Templars as a potent force in society, is attested by the fact that soon after the conclusion of the Council of Troy, the heads of state recognized the need to work with the Templar organization. Some did so more willingly than others, but willingly or not, all found it essential to deal with the leaders of the Templar order, which had by then established its potency as a force to be reckoned with, politically, economically, and militarily. Having thus realized his goal in life, the Pion passed to his maker in 1136, at the age of 66. In sum, it appears that Hugh de Pion was really the George Washington of the ancient Templars, not only because he was the first of many men to lead the order, but rather because of what he accomplished in that position. He made the most of that which he had been endowed and with that which he had been entrusted. He was a leader, in short, not because of a title, but because of deed. Therein is a lesson for the Templars of today. This is Brother Michael A. Smith, a voice for Freemasonry, 
And this has been the Short Talk Bulletin Podcast, produced in cooperation with the Masonic Service Association of North America for the purpose of providing a common stock of vetted Masonic information to all of the constituent lodges of all of the member jurisdictions and is made possible through a generous grant from the Grand Lodge AFNAM of Minnesota, who have been engaging and inspiring good men who believe in a supreme being to live according to the Masonic tenets of brotherly love, relief, and truth since 1853.